Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. I'm going to pray really quick just for this particular message. There is something known as the eyes of our understanding. And it's funny, but we can hear truth and not understand it or perceive it or grasp it. And to be honest, as one who teaches and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, I prefer to have people perceive, understand, and grasp. And I don't care if I sound intelligent in the process. I want the truth to be known and understood. I don't care if I get credit for it. My great passion is that people would know Jesus Christ. And in a message like this, it is a very basic message and yet very profound. There's dimension to this message that, let me say it this way, if you've hung around Christianity at all, you're going to know every bit of this message. And yet, you could have been around Christianity your entire life and not have understood a bit of this message. And how those two things could both be true is part of the message. So, let's just pray that this would be understood. Father, we just ask that the eyes of our understanding would be open, and that we would see, that we would hear, that we would understand. Lord, your truth is to be known. You desire us to believe, to turn to you, and to see, and to behold, to call out. And I pray that we would not just have intellectual understanding of who you are, but that we would truly turn unto the living God and be saved. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Whosoever believes... Uh, Sandy and I have gone back and forth on the title for this one, and, you know, I think this is pretty good. We're going to start with a, a scripture. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Look at this question at the very end. Believest thou this? Do you believe that there is one singular way of accessing the life of God and the salvation of God? I had this whole uh, scripture reference I was going to read. It was almost the entire book of John, though, and so I ended up cutting it out of my notes. (laughs) The entire book of John seems to enunciate one very clear thing. Of course, most of us know John 3.16, but it is belief. Believe and live. You see, there is a law in effect over our dead lives. And you may say, I'm not dead. You know, I'm breathing, I'm walking around. How can you call that dead? Well, the Bible calls it dead if you do not have spiritual life inside of you. If God is not living within you, if you do not have access unto his grace and his salvation, you're dead. And so that's what the Bible is typically referring to as dead. Now, there is another thing called mortal death. And yes, that is a true death as well. But in the Garden of Eden, the serpent baited Eve, and thusly Adam, to eat of a fruit. And God had already forewarned them, the day in which you eat of that fruit, you will die. If you rebel against God's word, if you disbelieve God's word, and you go against it, you die in such a day. And so there's this law called the law of sin 
and death. Or we could say the law that declares you sin, you die. And we have all, in a sense, participated in that law. We are under that law. We are condemned by that law. The just penalty for that law is death or eternal separation from God and the wrath of God. It's not a pretty sight. It's called bad news. However, there is another tree 4,000 years after that tree, and it's a tree on which a man hung. His name was Jesus. And in that tree, it's very interesting, but the book of John seems to declare when you believe and you eat of the fruit of that tree, which is a person known as Jesus Christ, you live. And God makes it clear that that is a higher law. That though you have sinned and you die, and that is the legal obligation or the legal ramifications of anything that we have participated in that was dark and of a rebellion towards God, if we believe, we have life. But the Bible is very clear. There is only one way to salvation, and that is believing. However, believing is not the great Savior. It's what you believe in. You know, because I could believe all sorts of things. But it's what you believe in that saves you. Belief seems to be the conduit, but what you believe in is what matters. And what you believe in must be a person named Jesus Christ. And you must know that his cross work is sufficient to do the rescuing for you. So Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, doesn't just say he that believes, he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? From death to life. So we're dead in our sins, under the just condemnation. It's just, by the way. It's deserving. God is perfectly just. We are under the just sentence of death and condemnation and even wrath. And yet, God desires to save us, to bring us life. And so how do we get from death unto life? Well, that's a very critical question that I think every soul must ask. It's like, if it is possible to get to life, I want it. Now, why I want it, I can't explain that. Why some of you in here want it, I can't explain that. Why someone in here may not want it, I can't explain that either. I can say certain things that the Bible makes clear, but there's a certain mystery that shrouds it of why I have such a hunger for life. Though I'm dead, I'm like, God, what must I do to be saved? And then the person next to me can say, I don't care about being saved. Well, one thing I do know is I want to be saved. And if you want to be saved, there is a Savior. And so I can appeal to that which is taking place within you that says, please, what must I do to be saved? I'm going to give you an answer to that question. Look at this first line, dead, believing, alive. In other words, you're dead What is the transition between dead and alive? Well, there's a key component there. Believing. You see, if you believe, you live. If you don't believe, you remain dead. Okay, so you see a dead, believing, alive. And let me break that down a little, because how do you believe? Well, we're going to say it this way. God has to do the saving work. And so, though your believing saves you, God is a part of even that awakening process of believing. And so how did I even see that life? Because I'm dead. How do I even see it? Well, you can call it grace. And what you can know, if those of you that know Scripture well, how are we saved? We're saved by grace through 
faith. And by the way, as I will clarify very soon, faith and believing are the same thing. One's a noun and one's the verb. One's the action of faith, known as believe. Okay? So, you are saved, you are dead, but then you are saved by grace through believing. And then, boom, voila, what do you have? You have life. Resurrection life. How did you get it? Well, it's a work of grace. But how does that grace work? It works in you through faith. In other words, without faith, you will not see God. Without faith, you will not live. If you do not believe, there is no life. So believing is rather critical. There's some of us that have been dead most of our life. In other words, do you know that you know when you're alive? And if I could ask you, are you alive? Do you have spiritual life inside of you? If you are confused on that point and don't understand what it would be to be alive, just because you've been in a church, just because you've prayed a prayer some day in your life, doesn't actually mean you're alive. You know when you're alive. And you know when you're, better way of saying it, not dead anymore. You have the hope of salvation. You have an assurance of salvation. There is a strength in your soul and in your understanding. I'm saved. I have life. Well, how do you articulate that to someone? Or how does someone articulate it back to you and say, well, how do I know if I'm dead or alive? You see, dead, and then we see grace. Now, if you were to break down the concept of believing, there are, I'm going to break it down into five different component parts. And the first one is knowing about something. For instance, someone could tell you that Jesus Christ existed, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, and that he died upon a cross. And you could even know that that death was for you. However, you know about something, sort of like trivial pursuits, you know the right answer to a question. And so you know something to be true, but you've never actually accessed that something in such a way that it changes you. And so as a result, there was death, but then there was a work of grace to actually alert you, and you could call it knowing. So now you know that God exists, you know that Jesus Christ did this, but there's still not life. And so what you could say is, still dead, still dead, still dead. You see, you're not alive, even though you know about the truth. How could that work? I thought faith saves us. I thought we live. Well, remember how I said, there's a faith that saves, and there's a faith that doesn't seem to save. It's sort of hard to explain, but it doesn't do the work. And I'm going to, that's the whole message, by the way, so I'm going to go through this in depth. But so we have death, and then we have a work of grace where we actually see this historic event known as the cross. And yet, we're still dead. We know about it, but it has never changed us. There is something more that is necessary in our believing to functionally work, because belief is more than mental assent or acknowledging that something existed. Just because you know that something exists doesn't mean it has saved you. I use the illustration at Ellerslie all the time. I can put a $20 bill on the stage and tell you that it's yours. It's yours. And then you go out to lunch afterwards and you're there and you order your food and it comes and then the bill comes and you're like yeah, I don't have any money you look to your buddy and they're like didn't Eric give you a $20 bill at church they go true yeah you could agree with it but if you don't if you truly believe that it was yours you'd get it that 20 would be in your pocket you wouldn't have to keep borrowing and that's the way we are in life God supposedly has done this great work but we don't have it in our pocket we can't use it to actually buy our meal we do not have the power of the gospel. We have the information about it. Okay? Remember how we had dead believing alive. That's the first line. The second line is dead grace believing alive. Now the third line, dead grace. And then now you know it, but you're still dead. You're still dead. You're still dead. But then 
there is an increase of grace upon us, and we then reckon truth. We present our body unto God. We exert and we obey. And those are the other parts of believing that we're going to go into. So saving faith. There is a faith that saves, and there's a faith that doesn't save. I know that sounds very strange, but that's what I want to go into. I want to dig a little into this. I made this drawing for you guys. I figured you'd appreciate it. Okay, on the left side, we have a very fatty meal, okay? It's not healthy, and for those of you that love McDonald's, I I don't know if that is McDonald's. It just has a sort of a similar look to it, obviously, but... We, I think we all know that even though it tastes good, it's not building up the good stuff in our body. It's not making us stronger. In many ways, it's making us weaker. And then look on the right side. There's some good old-fashioned health food, you know, the stuff that moms love. It's not very attractive at this exact moment to me, uh, but I know just by looking at those two things that the right side is healthy, the left side is unhealthy. Now, look at this guy. Now, that's actually a guy's body. I know I didn't draw his arms and his legs, but... <laughs> He's a little hefty, okay? He, he has a little weight uh, there. And now, look where his eyes are looking. Those are the eyes of faith. Those are, that's where he is putting his trust. That's what he knows to be true. That's all he knows. This poor guy is living in ignorance. All he knows is that bad food is available. And so what is he putting in his mouth? Look at the arrow that goes towards his mouth. By the way, that is his mouth, okay? That open black thing. It's, it's hard to draw with a computer uh, thing. And so what you have is his eyes looking towards that which he believes in. However, he's looking to find sustenance to his body. He's looking to find strength for his body, life for his body. But he's turning to the wrong thing. And as long as he keeps looking to that, well, what's he going to end up sticking in his mouth? That which he's looking to. And so he's sticking the junk into his body, and what is the result? Bloop. You see, he blows up like a balloon. He does not have life. He does not have strength. But what he has is death, and we could call this ignorant unbelief. Okay, now, many of us in this room are not living in ignorant unbelief, but there's a lot in this world that are. Now, what we can call this is stunted, non-working, unrepentant belief. And you can say, how in the world could you have that? Well, let's redefine it. It's knowledgeable unbelief. You see, practically, even though you believe that there's health food out there, practically speaking, you're not eating it. You're still eating the junk food. How many of us function this way in our Christianity? What do we do? We hear about Jesus, and we hear about salvation. We hear about all these good things, but what do we continue to do? We continue to eat the junk. You see, we could know that there is something better to be putting in our body, and we could, I mean, if someone actually pressed us on this issue, yeah, 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 I know Jesus saves. I know, yeah, yeah, I know he does all these things, but how are we functionally living? What's still going into our mouth? The junk. We are still partaking of the world. We are still entombed in our sin though we know about the good stuff most of us actually think that knowing about the health food is actually making us healthy somehow but it's eating the health food that makes you healthy i know that sounds like a radical thought however our christian world that we live in today is mainly stunted right here We know about the cross. We know about the sinless life of Jesus. But we are not partaking of that life and allowing it to change us. 
This guy just lost a lot of weight. We could call it repenting and believing. Okay, now what he has done is he didn't just hear about the truth. He doesn't just intellectually know about the better food, but he discards the bad food. He actually turns away from it practically in his life. It's called repentance. And he actually begins to eat and partake of something completely different. So now, functionally in his life, he doesn't just know about something, but he is actually partaking of something. And as a result, in the real world, his life changes and he gets healthy. Okay? So that's my great illustration for you. I have plenty more where that came from. Just wait for this message. So we have three options for the soul. We can be ignorant of truth or we can have a dead faith, which means we have knowledge of truth without proper soul response. Non-functional faith. If you know about something but do not respond to it, for instance, the $20 bill on the stage, you do not have functionally anything different than you had when you were in ignorant unbelief. But you know about something, so actually you're held to a higher level of accountability. You were given $20 and didn't take it. And so your friends at lunch, it's sort of hard for them to pay for your meal. They're like, what? You... You should have a 20 right now. They're like, oh, yeah, I didn't think I had to get the 20. And, like, and so then you're like, could you, could you still pay for my meal? They're like, ugh. There's a grumble. You see, before you were just a poor character and they always treated you to lunch. Now they're a little mad because you, they know that you know about the 20 and you didn't take it. You see, there's a responsibility that we have to actually not just know the truth, but to leave behind that which is not truth, that which has been killing us, and turn to that which gives us life. It's just basic. We all know this to be true. What I'm saying is just obvious. However, we've been stunted in our Christianity because we have not clarified and pressed this point. So as a result, we have a whole bunch of hybrids in the church that know they're dead, but they're still living in death because they've never fully crossed over from death unto life. Like I said, you know when you're alive. Oh, here's the third option, a working faith. Knowledge of truth, reckoning of truth, and responding to truth. Do you notice that there's a word included in that, a working faith? That sounds a little scary. If you've hung around Christianity, you know that there's one thing that we don't want to touch, and that's work. So I don't know about this word, a working faith. That sounds like you're doing something. That sounds like you're up to trying to save yourself. Is that what it means? A working faith, a faith that actually works. It goes to to work each day and actually functions and changes the life of a human. Are we allowed to work? Well, let's go into that. The fear of works. See, we are so afraid of works. And, you know, I'm not saying that there's not good reason for this. The Bible is very clear that the work of our humanity cannot save us. How are we saved? We're saved by the work of God. And so we are not saved by our good deeds. We're not saved by our righteousness, our virtue, our attempts at being like God. We are saved by his work. However, we must believe in his work. So did you know that we do have a work? It's called faith. We are supposed to do a work. Uh Oh, did I just say that? We are called to do something, and that is believe. Now, I'll give all the credit to God for the fact that I can believe. 
However, we are still supposed to do it. I like how Sandy says it. We have a response ability. Break those two words in half. We have a response ability. We have an ability to respond. Where did we get that? Well, we got it from God. It's called grace. However, what are you doing with that grace? Are you burying it in the, in the sand or are you investing it? You see, you've been given an ability to respond. It's called the responsibility. And when you see the truth and when you hear the truth, you have the grace to respond to the truth. Are you doing that? So we have two works. One of these works is unhealthy. One of these works saves you. One of these works is literally the antithesis of what Christ came to do. And the other one is the essence of what Christ came to do. The work of the law. We could call it leaning on Adam's ability and efforts to save. We have a capacity. These hands, they can get some work done. My, My brain, my eyes, my mouth, my feet. I have talents in this body. You know that I can do things on earth? In other words, I could mock the fact when God says, I'm dead. And I'm like, I'm not dead. I have plenty to give. I'll show you, God. You see, one of the great frailties of humanity is we think we are all that. We think that we have what we need in and of ourselves to, to stand before the throne of judgment and to pass the test. Look, God wouldn't throw me into hell. I'm perfectly fine. However, God makes it clear in his word that you're not. You are not as you ought to be. And therefore, before the bar of judgment, if all we take to that bar of judgment is ourself, as our own ability, we will not pass the sniff test. We do not have what we need in and of ourselves. The work of the law is what is condemned in Scripture as you are not saved by works. Adam, in his own strength, by the way, I'm an Adam. I am a human. I have no capacity in and of myself to create godness, to be as God is. Without God in me, I am dead spiritually. All I have is something that Paul calls the flesh. And the works of the flesh cannot please God. And flesh merely means body. I have ability, sure, but it cannot please and satisfy God. Therefore, I am cut off. Oh, no. And so when someone says, hey, I don't like you talking about works, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about you attempting in your own strength to please God and appease God and to satisfy the standards of righteousness. Well, there's another work. Brace yourselves. The work of faith. It's leaning on Jesus' abilities, ability and efforts to save, a.k.a. the Spirit. It's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. It's not by Adam. Not by his attempts at righteousness, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How does he save? He saves by working for us. He actually does the work, but what do we do? We believe he does the work. We give ourselves to that work. We allow him to do the work. We do a work, but he's the one doing all the work. Our job, and I think I've used this illustration before of Hudson, when he was young, I, I want to say three or four, he, he, he would see Daddy out shoveling. This is before the days of my snowblower. And he would see Daddy out there shoveling the big drifts. And so we got him a, a little shovel. It's a little red shovel that looked like Daddy's. And he would come out and uh, throw some snow up in the air, and it would fall down again. 
he'd take the areas that I'd already shoveled and pick something up and throw it on it. And he was participating with Daddy. He was absolutely adorable. And he'd go in for some hot chocolate, come back out, you know, throw a little snow around, come back in. However, when Daddy was done, he had a satisfaction of working with Daddy. And so he comes in, and guess what he says to Mama? Hey, Mama, Daddy and I finished shoveling the driveway. And do you know that Daddy does nothing to dispel the notion that Hudson participated in all of this? However, who really shoveled the driveway? Yeah, Daddy, sweat to prove it. Now, if anything, Hudson probably complicated the work of shoveling the driveway. However, Daddy has a great delight in including his son in the work. And so, even though we're not going to give Hudson a lot of credibility, you know, in in doing a lot of work in the big picture, if we were to break it down scientifically, however, God does not blush from saying, thank you for what you did. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The work of faith. How does faith work? Now, you'll notice the word work is sort of, can be used in multiple ways in this message. I could say, have you ever tried faith? It works. Okay? And I could also say that faith is a work. It is actually an activity of the soul where we do something. It's not passive. It is an active engagement. Faith without works is dead, it says. And so here we are talking about works. Whoa, what's James talking about? The book of James actually says that exact line. Faith without works is dead. Well, when faith goes to work, how does it function? What does it do? It believes. That's what it's doing. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. You know that our great job is to believe on Jesus? It's to believe his word. Jesus is the word of God in text, and he's the word of God in person. Our great labor of soul is to believe. And I want you to know, even though that sounds very simple, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do in this life. Just believing when all the winds and the rains are beating against your house to fix your feet to that rock and say, I will not budge from my position. Faith and believe. Okay, those are the two words. Now, there's a lot of different variations of it, like believeth, believe, uh, believed, like past tense. But believe is an active verb. And so what is the difference between these two things? Well, faith is the noun. It's, the Greek word is pistis. It's the operation, the overarching operation of believing is known as faith. And then we have believe, which is the verb, which is pistuyo, which is the action. Okay, so as you go through, and if you're studying this, you begin to realize that even though the words don't sound similar, they are actually based on the same concept. And that is belief. To believe. We can call it the art of Christian doing. If you're believing, you're doing something. You're not passively saying, oh yeah, I I acknowledge that Jesus Christ died and rose again 2,000 years ago. That's fine. Am I I fine now? Can I come to the church? That's not how it works. And if anyone's patting you on the back just because you believe that a historic event took place 2,000 years ago, they're doing you a disservice because you're most likely still dead. In other words, active faith that believes causes life. And that's what's promised in Scripture. So here's our five dimensions to believing. You must know something to be true. Reckon it to be true. Present yourself unto it as truth. Exert the reality of that truth and obey it. Okay, now these are five dimensions that are revealed in Romans 6. Paul is talking literally about how the soul goes from death 
unto life. And these are the five dimensions of belief that he brings out. Say there's a Rotary Club uh, barbecue down the street, and they're serving hamburgers and hot dogs. And I hear that there is a barbecue, and they are free. The hamburgers and hot dogs are free. But what if I don't respond to it? What if I do not consider it something I can go to? I don't consider myself invited to it. Well, as a result, there will not be a free barbecued hamburger or hot dog in my digestive system. That's just a fact. And as a result, though I know about something, I am not participating in it. Where I don't yield up my day and my schedule and present my schedule to the fact that I'm going to go to that. And then actually pick up the hamburger and start chewing on it. You know what? There's actually a practical outflow of if I truly believe that and I know I need it, what will I do? I'll go and get it. So the knowing. Let's just go through this in Romans 6. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You see, if you don't know these things, you can't respond to them. If no one tells me about the free barbecue, I won't go. In other words, all the other things flow out of knowing. If I do not hear about it, I can't respond to it. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Don't you know this? Hasn't anyone told you? Paul is always saying things like, what? Don't you know? And that's exactly the point. Hasn't anyone told you this? You see, you are responsible for what you know. And we as the gospel tears are responsible to go into this world and clarify what is truth so that people can know and so that they can believe. The reckoning. Reckoning is a, is a word that we detail in great um, clarity here at Ellers. We go through it. It's an accounting term. But it's the concept of taking something to your account. Even though you can't see it. For instance, if, if you had a checkbook and you had a check that you needed to write, say it's for $1,000, and there was a, like some mob boss out there was pressing saying, I need the check, and I need it now. He'd have a deep bassy voice, I need the check, and I need it now. Right. And I mean, you'd be trembling, and you checked your account earlier this morning, what did it have in it? Zippo, nothing. Well, guess what? If you write a bad check to this guy, all's going south. Now imagine, so you're in a, a difficult situation. We've got some bad news lingering over you. Okay, because you don't have anything in your checkbook, and yet there is a demand for $1,000. Now imagine that I interject myself into the situation and said, you know, like, I saw your need. I saw your situation. I saw your dilemma. I wired $1,000 into your account. It's there. And now the, the mob boss says, write me the check. The question is, do you feel comfortable writing a check? Because sight unseen, what do you have to do? You have to believe. Believe what? Believe my word. You have to trust my character that when I say it, I mean it. God actually says this is what it means. It's reckoning. It's not tangibly holding the money in your hand, counting out $1,000 and saying, okay, now I believe. It's saying, my God said it. He cannot lie. I'll write the check. It's reckoning it to your account. And so you have confidence now to write a check that before I said that and gave you a promise you did not have the confidence to. And so as a result, reckoning is not seeing, it's knowing and then responding to what you know with faith. 
and saying, my God cannot lie. I can trust his character. So Paul says, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are supposed to reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin. Well, guess what? Sin was knocking on your door just earlier this morning. And yet in Romans 6, it says that 2,000 years ago, when Christ died, you died with him. And you're supposed to reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin as if it's past tense. The money's in the account. Write a check from that. No longer does sin control you. Don't you believe? And you're like, I don't know. My experience testifies to something quite different. And I'm telling you not to look at your experience, but to look at the facts of Scripture. What did God promise? What did he say? And God says, believe his word. And when you believe his word, guess what? You begin to live. The presenting. So here's the Scripture. Neither. Now, the word yield actually is a Greek word that's hard to pinned down in the, in the English language. It means sort of two things at once. It's like a semi-truck pulling up to a warehouse. And the warehouse needs what's in that semi-truck. And so it presents its warehouse by opening the doors. It says, come on in, come on in, right there, come back up, back up. And that's what we're supposed to do. So the word means present, but it also means to yield, which means everything in that semi-truck is allowed in. And so we are to present and yield. Well, that's part of believing. If you truly believe that that semi has what you need, and without it, you die, what are you going to do when it starts going, deet, 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 and backing up to your warehouse? Well, you're going to present, and you're going to yield. That's an act of believing. It's part of the practicals. You can't make Christianity all mystical and just theoretical. It's practical. Jesus says, I have something that you need, and without it, you can't live. That something is me. And I need to come in and take over this warehouse. You're like, well, I don't know if I like that. Well, if you don't like it, you can spurn it and keep the doors closed and die. However, if you believe, you turn from what you have been doing and how you have been using your warehouse. And you say, this thing stinks. And you open up the doors and say, I need what you have to come in. So you don't just know about it. Know about a semi out there that, yeah, it has good stuff in it that can save people. No, then you must reckon that semi is coming to my warehouse. As a result, this warehouse is going to be made new, and you have faith for it even before it happens. You're new in Christ even before the semi has arrived. And then when you hear the dee, 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 you're like, it's here, and you fling open the doors, and they bring in the cargo. That's faith. Neither yield. So do not do that. Do not yield these bodies as unto sin. But yield yourselves, present and yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. So if you remember that that illustration of the bad food and the good food, Paul's saying, do not yield your body to that bad food anymore. Do not yield this body to that which is killing you. But repent of that and yield unto the good stuff. Well, the good stuff in this case is Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, the manna come down from heaven. We, unless we eat of his body and drink of his blood, we can have no life in us. We must change our diet, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead as, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you are not under the law, but under grace. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded, your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield and present your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. The exerting. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. It's sort of hard to know how to describe exerting, which is why I have some of the illustrations coming up. But when you have the new stuff, the stuff out of that semi coming in, you have a new strength. You have the operation of God inside of you. And you can now, with that machinery inside of you and all the good stuff inside of you, actually produce righteousness. You can actually show forth the glory of God, but not you. It's Christ living in you. However, you are a participant in the process of agreeing with what God is wanting to do. And your job is to believe. Your job is to allow God to use this body, and I call it exert, which is let not sin. This is a command to us. Doesn't it make more sense where God would say, all right, Jesus, let them not sin anymore. And that would make more sense to us. However, God commands us. And he says, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body. We're like, well, what do I have to do with this? I am controlled by sin. No, you're not. Don't you remember what you believed in? You turned away from the junk. No longer are you subservient to the bad food, but now you're eating the good food. Now you've allowed it into your life, and now you have the authority to tell your body what to do. It's called belief. It's called faith, but not just faith in anything. It's faith in the word of God and in the promises of God. The obeying. Well, you don't just do this once. Imagine allowing the the semi to come up. You allow the cargo in. And you believe and you exert once. You know that you must walk in this obedience? The whole thing is obedience. Obedience is the starting point, And obedience is what you're doing 30 years from now. Every moment of every day is believing. And how does that believing look? It's obeying. Because most of us, when we think about our Christian life, it's like, oh, I believed 30 years ago. Yeah, I believed. Well, how come you're not obeying? Because if you truly believe, it is marked and is denoted in your life through a constant obeying. You exert not just once, you exert every moment of your life. A temptation comes, you go, no. And you exert and you obey in accordance with Scripture, which says, take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. And now you have the muscle of God within to actually obey, which you didn't have before when you were dead. But now you are not dead because you believed and you have life and you have strength and you have power to actually tell this body how it is going to be in agreement with the word of God. And this is being alive in Christ Jesus. No longer under the thumb of sin, but now controlled by righteousness, controlled by the spirit of God, able to please God. Who wouldn't want this life? Oh, it's the most incredible life ever. It's God's life and it's called eternal life. It never ends. So here we are with the word obey from Romans 6. But God be thanked, That you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. The gift of meanness. I had a message a few weeks back called the Master Builder, and I read through this. I'm going to read through it again very quickly. But what we have is a parable. It's a statement of how God's kingdom works. So many of us, by the way, we know about the gift of talents. Remember the talents of gold that were given? And a lot of us have concluded that those talents are some type of thing where God's teaching us about how we handle our finances. Well, I'm not saying it can't affect our finances. However, that's not what it's talking about. The gift of God is, first of all, Jesus Christ. And secondly, 
It's grace. We've been entrusted with a grace. Imagine that you are given a grace and you see that God has done something great for you. You see that he came and he died for you. That is a gift of grace, which, by the way, you couldn't see otherwise. He has entrusted you with a mina. He's entrusted you with a talent of gold. And he says, what are you going to do with it? Because now you have a responsibility. You actually have substance given you by God as a gift of God. I can't boast in it. I didn't derive it. I didn't invest my Adam self to be able to come up with my original talent of gold. He gave it to me. How did I get that faith? How did I get that basic understanding? How did I hear even? How did I understand? But then I must respond. But what do I have? I've been given something. I've been given a talent. I've been given a mina in this story. The gift of the minas. Now as they heard these things, he, speaking of Jesus, spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So just imagine, each one of you has been given a mina. This is actually how it works. You've been given a mina. You actually have a trust that has been given you. You've been entrusted with an understanding at a certain level of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been entrusted with an understanding of the work of the cross. You actually, though you were dead, have been given something. And so the king returns. And he says, well, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Oh, well done. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you were an austere man. Not a wise thing to do. Oh, sure, I knew about what you'd done on the cross, but I, I was afraid of what, you know, if I'm going to actually invest this grace that I have and believe and actually allow you to take over my life. I don't know. So I buried it. I put it in a handkerchief. Whatever the story would be, because the talent story, the guy buried it. In the Mina story, he put it in a handkerchief to guard it. What have we done with the grace that has been given us? You know, some of us, there's people in other countries that have been given grace, and they don't understand the full gospel. They don't understand things. However, they have lived to the point of their own understanding. They have responded with the little they've received. Many of us in this room have received a lot. And to whom much is given, much is required. We have been given a lot. And when the king returns, what is he going to see? What have we gained through the trading? Which sounds like a funny term for it, but for the work of the grace that he's given us. Have we believed? Have we invested that faith that we have? You collect, and this is the, the guy that didn't make the wise decision, by the way, the one that kept it in a handkerchief, still talking. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. 
But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. Isn't that exactly what we think too? Oh, well, why in the world are you going to distribute it that way? And one of the things you're going to begin to learn about faith is that when you invest your faith, you get more faith. That's how faith grows. And so those that take the grace that they have been given and invest it, get more faith. They get more grace. And so when you walk in obedience, you actually get more. It's a strange thing, and I know it sounds inequitable. However, we've all been given something. What are we doing with it? So it says, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, and slay them before me. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So here's a few illustrations I want to give you. Imagine that... I come from a long heritage of uh, men who the firstborn son in every family gets to inherit a treasure map. And, you know, actually in my descendancy, in my dad's line, we, I come from seven generations of pastors. And so it's sort of like that, where I have this inheritance, where there's this treasure map. And imagine that I know that my dad has a treasure map, and he's even said, Eric, all you need to do is ask, and I'm ready to give it to you. You're of age now, so just ask. Now, as we go through this, what I'm going to try and do is break down the concept of believing because knowing that my dad has a treasure map doesn't mean I have the treasure. Does that make sense? Knowing that a treasure map exists and even that I have rightful access to it does not mean I have the treasure. Many of us are dead and we know about a treasure map and we know the treasure map would even be ours if we would just ask and go after it. However, we remain in a knowledge state and never actually dig up treasure. What is necessary to go from not even knowing about a treasure map to having a treasure? Because that's what Christianity is. Christianity isn't knowing about a treasure. It is having a treasure. So I can know my father has the map. I can believe the map is true. Could you imagine someone says, so does your father have a map? Do you have legal access to it? Yeah, I'm the firstborn. I have right to the Ludi treasure map. And so I could know about it. I can believe the map is true. Someone could say, do you think it actually leads to treasure? Oh, yes, absolutely, it leads to treasure. Yet I'm sitting here without the treasure map? I mean, how ridiculous is that? If I know that my father has a treasure map and I have legal access to it because I'm his son, what in the world am I doing? What would be the first thing you would do? You could ask any little boy in here and they'll tell you what they would do. I'm going to go get the treasure map. You see, the little boys in here don't understand what it means to get on a ship and go over the high seas and be, you know, around pirates, you know, that have, you know, and then scurvy and things like that that are in the boats, you know, and all sorts of bad things that happen. They don't understand all the dangers. They just know that there's a great adventure and there's a treasure waiting. That's how a little child accesses the treasure as well. I want that treasure map. They don't overthink it and say, well, what's going to happen to me in the process? I may die trying to get that treasure. Who cares? There's a treasure map. The looty treasure map. I mean, just ask Hudson. He wants that treasure map too. He's like, when you get it, then when am I of age to get it from you? I can believe the map my father possesses is the only copy in existence today that can lead me to the treasure. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Absolutely true. Is there only one treasure map? Yes, that's true. There's only one copy. My dad has it. What you, just knowing this stuff does not mean you have a treasure. I think all of you know that now. I can call upon my father and get the map. So what if I call upon my father and I do the first step, the first movement of grace? And I said, you have that map, don't you? He goes, I've been waiting for you to ask. And I take that map, fold it up, and stick it in my pocket. 
I can fold it and stick it in my pocket, but the information about how to find the treasure, if it remains only in my pocket, is not the way one actually accesses the treasure the map is referring to. You see, I can know about it. I can even have made requests of it. However, if I do not continue to activate the realities of what it means to believe, if I really do believe that there's a treasure, and I believe that this is the only map that can lead me to it, and I have access to this map, and that if, if I obey this map, and if I exert the position I have as the firstborn, I have legal inheritance of a treasure. What should I do? Stick it in my pocket and go, yeah, I have a treasure map. I have a treasure map. Do you have a treasure map? I have a treasure map. You should get a treasure map too. Come on. What's the good of a treasure map? What must I do to be saved? Er, that's sort of an old-fashioned um. Er, I mean, uh, what must I do to find the long-lost looted treasure? So how many Christians have a treasure map in their pocket? And they're like, I've done everything I've been told to do, Eric. I don't know what else to do. What must I do to be saved? Because when you talk about being alive, I don't know that I'm alive. But I have a treasure map. Well, let's talk about that. Being a true treasure hunter. I must know about the map. If I don't know about the map, then I don't know to ask my father. And so as a result, I must know about the map, and that's knowing. That's the first aspect of believing. I must reckon the map mine. Imagine that I don't even have the map in my pocket yet. But what do I do when I hear? When I hear that there's a treasure map and it's available to the firstborn looty, what should I say? I have a treasure map. And I can actually begin to have a joy inside of me saying, there's a treasure that's mine. I have it. I've reckoned it to my account, even though I don't even yet have it. But I have it by faith. I have it by faith that the word of promise given to me by my father is true, and he wouldn't lie to me. I have a treasure map. There's a looty lost treasure. Well, then I can't stop there. I must present my life and body under the adventure and sign up as a seaman in pursuit of the promise of which the map speaks. Take my body. Take my life. Whatever you want to do, I want that treasure. That treasure is mine. And if someone says, that treasure is not yours until you get it. Hey, that is the lost looty treasure. When we get to the box, it'll say looty on it. It's the lost looty treasure. It's mine even before I have it in full experience. That's reckoning it. But then presenting yourself as a seaman and actually engaging in the battle, leaving behind my old life, saying adios to everything that I'm familiar with. So I go on the vast adventure of finding the life, the treasure. I must exert and take real world steps, climb mountains, venture through valleys, cross raging rivers, the whole while knowing that if I heed this map, I will find the treasure. The treasure is mine by faith already. But then I actually will, in reality, have tangible gold. It will be mine. How do I know? Because this map cannot lie. I believe it. I believe this treasure does belong to me. See, I've taken it by faith, and every step of this journey is a step of faith. Faith expressing itself in love. This is how we please God. This is how we access life, treasure, Jesus, the fullness of God. So the whole while knowing that if I heed this map, I will find the treasure. I must do the work of a treasure hunter. The work of a treasure hunter is not sticking a treasure map in your pocket. What does a treasure hunter do? I'm going after that treasure. If there's treasure with my family name on it, I'm going to find it. I must obey the map implicitly. What if I get a cocky attitude? I'm halfway through the journey and I don't like where the map is leading. You know, I've been exerting, I've been living this, but you know what? This is getting tough. I have to go through this dark you know, cave 
Uh, there's some, you know, ugly things down there, some, you know, some bugs and some skeletal structures down there. It's like, I don't like this. Should I turn around and say, you know, I'm going to find this treasure my own way? If I go off the reservation that has been entrusted to me, that map, that word of God, I will not find the treasure. I must stay true, which is the concept of obeying. Staying true to the map, staying true to the record that has been entrusted to me. I must obey the map implicitly. What it, what, what it says goes. When it says north, I must go north. When it says jump, I must jump. When it says dig, I must dig. Imagine if I don't feel like digging. It's like, I want the treasure to just be on the surface. I have gone on this vast journey, and there's no way I'm going to spend any more energy in this journey. I'm not digging. I'm not getting the treasure. It's that simple. Unless you heed and obey the record, the word of God, you will not get the treasure. You see, we work out our salvation. The whole process. We do have salvation when we know and when we believe. We do actually, when we reckon it is ours by faith. However, there is a real working out of that life in us. And there's an ever-growing and ever-crescendoing life that increases within us throughout all eternity. More and more of seeing and knowing our God. But we live by faith. If I do the work of a treasure hunter and I implicitly heed the treasure map's instruction, I will, and we should have will in like all caps, I will, maybe like four underlines under it, I will find the treasure. That's faith. Oh, I will find the treasure. Well, how do you know, Eric? You've been out here looking for that treasure. Wait, I'm still following the map. The map promises that if I go here, 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 I will get it. You sure do have a lot of confidence in that map. You better believe it. This is the word of God. That's the way we treat it. This is the word of God. It's not the opinions of man. It's not just a philosophy. It is God's word. And God cannot lie. I believe it. And as a result, I demonstrate belief in all five aspects of what believing is. Believing. Faith that works. That's just a summation of what it is. Now listen to this. This is going to shock you. However, I've given you plenty of advance warning for this scripture in James. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believes that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You may know that there is one God. You may know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Guess what? The devil knows that. It's not just knowing a historical event. There must be faith and something known as works. However, not the works that we all immediately think of. It's not talking about the works of the law. It's not talking about Adam's attempts. It's talking about a work known as the work of faith. So let's continue here so you can understand that. The devils also believe and tremble, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Listen to this line. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? If you've read the New Testament, you know just that his righteousness was accredited to him because of believing, because of faith. What's this saying? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? And we could say, no. No, it was by his believing. Well, let's keep reading. 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. It was his faith, but his faith was a working faith. You see, he didn't just hear about what he needed to do with Isaac and then say, oh, okay, I believe he did it. You see, it wasn't a work of the law. He wasn't trying to appease God. He was obeying. The whole concept of obedience was revealed in Scripture in this passage in Genesis. This is where obedience was first launched into the understanding of the Hebrew mind. Was this picture. You see, faith must work. It must obey. And that is a working faith that actually justifies us before God. It is not just a knowing, a head knowledge. It is a faith that believes and then acts upon it to get the treasure. It is actually a working faith. I know that sounds strange for all of us that are hypersensitive to the fact that, no, there's no works involved. Well, there is a work. It's called the work of faith. Seest thou how faith works through with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture, which was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. In other words, James is not contradicting it. He actually quotes that scripture. He says, see, this was imputed to him as righteousness because of his faith. But it was a working faith. It was a faith that had action to it. It was true believing. And then look at this other illustration. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. What a strange statement. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So Rahab may believe in the supremacy of the God of the Jews. She may believe it in her mind, but however, she worked out her faith by when the spies came, She said, whatever you guys want, however I can participate in this, I want to serve your God instead of the God of Jericho. And as a result, it was credited to her as righteousness. She was justified by a faith that worked. Not just a faith that acknowledged that the God of the Hebrews is one powerful God, but one that actually gave up her heritage as a Jerichite, forsook it. She became an Israelite. In the line of David, do you know that Boaz, Rahab, was Boaz's mother? Strange as that is. Do you know that it's like great, 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 great or something like that? Grandmother of David, King David? That's Rahab. How was she grafted in? By faith. She believed and acted upon that belief. And when you act, when you repent of an old way and turn, she didn't just acknowledge that there's better food out there to be eating. She forsook the meal she had and turned from it and believed. And that's what changed her. That's what saved her. The work of faith. It's not the work of Adam that pleases or justifies, but the work of the Spirit, the work of faith. The gospel sword, exchanging out the feather duster for something that can actually work. I don't know if, how I'll be able to do this, but we'll at least try. This is the ability that Adam has to defend himself against the attacks of the enemy. And you could say, why would you lean on that? Well, this is my strength. This is my ability. Now, I don't perceive my own ability to be a feather duster. But when I come to the word of God, it says, Eric, did you know that you have a feather duster in your hand? I'm like, that's not a feather duster. That's a broadsword. To me, this is sufficient. And God has to say, Eric, do you want to know why you keep losing the battle? It's because that is a feather duster. And one day my eyes actually open. 
And I look at this thing that I've been trusting in, and I'm like, this thing stinks. And I say, what must I do to be saved? Because then suddenly I begin to realize I am helpless to the power of sin. I can't defend myself. But there's something that has been supplied to me 2,000 years ago. Now, just because I haven't known about it or understood it up until this day doesn't mean it hasn't been there the whole time. You see, God has already done the work. My job is to believe it. You see, I have something in my hand which is actually not helping me. It's the work of the law, the work of Adam, my own ability to defend myself, to rescue myself, to deliver myself from evil, and the judgment to come. You think this is going to do it? No. And until I finally awaken to the fact that this thing is ridiculous, I can't believe I'm fighting with this. And guess what? That's where every one of us must come. We all have that day of shame when we recognize what we've been fighting with. I can't believe I was even trusting in that. This is pathetic, okay? And it really is. Now, what I must do, let's see if I can walk through this properly. What I must do, okay, I'll do it this way. The sword is there, ready to help me, but I don't know about it. I do know about this because God, by his grace, has begun to awaken me. How did I even know that this is insufficient? How did I know that this is not working? By grace. It is a work. You know the law given to the Hebrews was a work of grace? I know it sounds strange, but it was. It wasn't the grace that would save them, but it was a work that would prepare them to be saved. It says the law was a schoolmaster which led them to Christ. God was awakening them to say, yep, perfect righteousness right here. Can you do it? I can't do it. We can't stay righteous. What's wrong with us? You have a feather duster in your hand, says God. You're like, what? How did that get there? And that's what God does to all of us. He begins to awaken us to the fact that we all have a feather duster. What's laying off to the side? You guys might not be able to see it any more than I've been able to see it in my life. But there's a sword. And that sword is one powerful sword. By the way, this sword is the sword from the gospel video that we have, so it's the gospel sword. It's the gospel. Now, I don't want us to mix our metaphors and our parables because in Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God, and one of the elements is a sword. I'm not trying to compete with that metaphor. I'm trying to make a very simplistic metaphor about one specific thing known as believing, okay? So that's merely a weapon to fight against something, okay? So what do I have to do to take that sword? First of all, when I hear about the sword, I must believe. I must know that it exists. If I don't know that the sword exists, guess what? I'll never take the sword. So believe stage number one, knowing. I hear about the sword. You know, unless we hear, we cannot believe. I believe it is there, that it is real. Jesus died to save me. The sword is for all who would believe. So imagine I stand here and someone tells me, Eric, you don't have to keep fighting with this. God has made available to you a sword. A sword. I have a sword? The sword is himself. He has actually done the work and supplied you with everything you need to fight off that enemy. Really? And what do I need to make a decision of? I could doubt it and I could say, that's ridiculous. And I could spit in the face of the messenger. Or I could say... I believe, and I want that sword. Now, let's go to the next one. Believe stage two, reckoning. I call upon the sword. Now, if I believe in the sword, and what if someone tells me, well, that sword is yours? And so what am I going to do? I'm going to believe that that sword is actually mine. It's been set aside for me to wield. It's not just a sword that belongs to someone out there, and that one sword out there could defeat the enemy, but I have no access to it. But part of my believing and my knowing is that this sword is mine. It is waiting for you, Eric. Call upon the sword. 
You see, I am unable to even get the sword at a certain level. However, I have a responsibility. I have an ability to respond. I can believe. I can call out. And so what I'm doing is I'm reckoning. I'm saying that sword is mine. By faith, even though I might not have it in my grip yet, what do I need to do? I need to set down this crazy thing so that I can exchange something. If I have been holding on to self, I must relinquish self. And then I must call upon that sword. So I call upon the sword for that sword will save me. In that sword is my salvation. In that sword is my deliverance from bondage. That sword is in fact mine. I am saved. You see, when I reckon, it's a present tense reality. I am saved. And someone could say, well, but you don't even have the sword in your hand yet. But that sword is mine. And it says in scripture that if I call upon it, it will save me. So I am saved by reckoning. In other words, it's not just knowing about a sword, but then reckoning that sword mine actually makes it mine in fact. And in that moment, I have a new confidence. I'm saved because I have a sword. Well, I don't see the sword. Oh, just watch. The sword's coming. The sword is going to demonstrate its power in and through my life. And it's true. Because I am saved. I finally have found my salvation. I may not have it in my hand experientially, but I have the sword's salvation. How? By faith. And so when I call out, you know what happens? This sword, literally, like a magnetic device towards faith and towards believing. I wish I could demonstrate that. It'd be a little weird for all of you if I did, though. But the sword, literally. Now, what do I have? I have a grip. Do you know that my body is made to hold a sword? It's a really strange thing, but my body, the way I was created, is designed to actually house the strength of what Jesus Christ did on that cross. And so it's strange. Imagine if I didn't have any hands, like a good old VeggieTales thing, when my kids are like, how do they do that? Uh, But I am not a vegetable. I have been given the equipment to hold. In other words, I've been given a responsibility. I have a responsibility or an ability to respond and to grip. And so what I do is I present this body that God has given me to be able to hold and wield that weaponry that he has built for me. Did I come up with the sword? No. Am I the one that even wields the sword? Well, not really. He wields it in me. However, I am part of the process. And so I forsake my feather duster, and I turn to the sword. I call upon it and let, what do you know? I have in my grip the grip that was designed to hold the life and the truth and the salvation of Jesus. I actually have it. It's very real. Presenting, I grip the sword. I yield my body to the purposes of sword work. I have been given a hand that it might grip. You see, I have been entrusted with this body, this life, not so that I'm just helpless, a helpless passive observer to the work of God in my life, but that I'm an active participant in the work of God in my life. Now, how does that work work? It works by grace. However, I yield unto that grace, and I allow that grace to function. You see, I still must call upon that sword, and even if I give God all the credit for the calling, I still must do it. So when I know to call, what should I do? Call. When I know to grip, what should I do? If I just had an open hand, a limp wrist, what would happen to the sword? It'd just fall. However, I must present this body and have this body begin to function as it ought to hold and to grip this sword. 
I have been given a grip that I might take hold of this promise and wield it as a hand ought. I agree with the purpose of the sword and I take hold. I cleave, I grab it with my might. So whatever I have given me by grace, I wield it and I exert it by faith and I hold on to the promise of God. I present my body a living sacrifice. And I say, take this body and use this body as you would see fit. And he says, I have it fit and I designed it to hold a sword. Grip. And I'm like, but I can't do anything, God. It's all your work. And he says, but you have a responsibility. I've given you grace to take that hand and cleave it. Cleave it under the sword. Grip it. Hold on to the promises. That's what you do in this process. You believe. Your job is to believe. It's to do the work of faith. Exerting. So imagine that I have a sword and the enemy comes up to me and continues to maul me and harm me, what is the good of having a sword in my grip unless I exert its strength and its power? So what do I do? In my believing, it's not just knowing that a sword exists. It's not just reckoning that that sword is mine. It's not just gripping it in my hand. What must I do with it? God says, swing the crazy thing. And when I swing... And I exert the authority, as it says in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What's another way of saying that? Swing the sword. Swing the sword. I've given you authority, Eric. Don't just talk about the authority. Don't just know you have authority. Exert the authority. And when I exert the authority, guess what? I demonstrate in this natural realm the realities of another realm. The work of the cross from 2,000 years ago is now being made manifest in this hour in our very lives as believers. My salvation is worked out in actual experience. My faith works. My faith is proven to be a saving faith. Believe, stage five, obeying. I learn to swing the sword as the master swordsman swings it. Now, remember, I don't know if any of you remember your first sword swing of authority in the kingdom of heaven. Because we have a lot of students in here. That's what discipleship is. Here's a sword. Swing it. They're like, huh, what? It's a little awkward. It's not the perfect swing. However, it still works. Because just like Hudson shoveling the walk with me or the driveway with me, it's really God who is taking our willingness and our obedience and wielding it to a level far beyond our ability to swing a sword. Because we're pretty pathetic with this thing. However, there is a strength that God wants to teach us, and that's in the Word of God. He says, I want to teach you how to wield this sword. And so obedience is not just the first-time swing of the sword. It's not a one-time swing. If any of you have been Christians for any length of time, you know that. It is a constant watchfulness. You are a swordsman, and you're becoming a master swordsman. But how do you become a master swordsman? By the same grace by which you originally believed. You are not just saved by grace in the big S salvation. I have to make an S with my head. (laughs) But in the daily minute-by-minute salvation, the small S salvation throughout your life, you need grace to know how to rightfully wield this sword. But where do you learn how to rightfully wield it? In the Word of God. And so as you grow up as a Christian, you are learning how to more dexterously believe You don't just believe once in your life. You believe every moment of your life. That's how a Christian lives. Where does life come from to a Christian? Through the channel of faith. You believe what God says. And when you believe, you win. 
So I learned to swing the sword as a master of swords and swings it. I now walk in this faith, daily learning how to wield its power, heed the instructions of its proper use, and marshal its efficacy to the fullest potential. The flashlight. Here's our flashlight. Sandy found it for me. Good job, Sandy. You had a lot of props for me today. (laughs) Understanding the way a flashlight works. Now I'm going to show you something. I'm going to click it on right here with this white button. Nothing's coming out. There's no light. Now, what's the good of a flashlight that doesn't work? Some of you have wondered that, too, when you go into your, like, we call it a junk drawer, you know, and you have your, like, flashlight in there, and it's a dark night, the, the lights go out, and the one time you need the crazy thing, you pull it out of the drawer and click it on, and nothing happens. And you're like, what a waste. It's like that pen. The one pen that you have in your house that doesn't have any ink in it or doesn't work. And then how, how many of you actually stick it back in the drawer, too? <laughs> so... A flashlight is worthless. I mean, even this thing is lightweight. It's plastic. So even like the robber in the middle of the night that you try and crush over the head with this thing, this thing would break. Not his head, okay? In other words, this thing is worthless when it doesn't function as it ought. This flashlight is dead. It's just a fact about this flashlight. So I'm going to introduce you to three different dimensions here. Understand the way a flashlight works. The tripartite being, the temple of God is divided up into three segments. You have the outer court, you have the inner court, and you have the holy of holies. Okay, and the body is divided up very similarly, where we have the flesh or the body side of our being. We have the soul or the mind, will, and the emotions, which is us. It's like you. And then we have the spirit dimension or the holy of holies, but it's empty. It's dead. You see, there's no life in there, just like this. You see... The reason this isn't working, as many of you might even be able to guess, is either the batteries are in wrong or they're not in at all. And in this case, they're not in at all. There's three dimensions to this illustration. The flashlight, which we'll liken to the body. Now, this is sort of an inverted illustration because the grip is the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. The one part you can't typically see, you're actually going to see, which is my grip. Okay, my grip is us. It's the you in this story. And then the battery holder, which is inside, and I can't just easily show it to you, but I will in just a second. I'm just trying to strategize how I'm going to do this, uh, is where the spirit is supposed to be. See, there's supposed to be batteries in this. There's supposed to be power in this. However, there's not. And as a result, this thing has become useless. It's dead. It cannot please any person that reaches into the drawer in the middle of the night and draws it out to say, I need light, and I need light now. What's it good for but to be thrown into the trash? It is not functional as it ought to be. It comes up to the fig tree that's not producing figs. What's the good of a fig tree? It's meant to produce figs. And so as a result, that fig tree is cursed. The flashlight is cursed, believe me, in many different ways. When it does not function as it ought to function in the moment it is needed. So, let's see if we can explore this. So we have some bad news. You are condemned guilty, culpable for flashlight negligence. Lost in darkness, unable to see. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound like us prior to Christ? The flashlight is dead. You can shake it. It doesn't do anything. Powerless, unable to perform, crammed full of garbage instead of batteries. Not pleasing, not functioning as it ought. And I'll unscrew the top and show you what's in there in just a second. The battery holder is empty. It is crammed full of self instead of batteries. And as a result, cannot function as it ought. Supplying zero power to the flashlight it was designed to empower. See, Paul is actually describing this situation with this flashlight, even though flashlights didn't exist back then, in Romans chapter 7. And he's saying, you see, I know how this flashlight is supposed to work. 
It's supposed to shine light when I click it. However, it's not functioning. So what I want to do with this flashlight, I can't. Because there's no power inside of it to enable it to function. He says, oh, woe is me. Who can save me from this junk flashlight? He calls it the body of death. You know what his next line is? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God has made provision for us. However, if you don't know about that provision, all you have is a dead flashlight. So the good news. Meanwhile, the batteries have been made available. They are waiting to be found, desiring to be utilized in order to bring power, light, life, and purpose to the flashlight. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would, get this, believe should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever would believe and allow God to have this flashlight and to fix it the way he intends to fix a flashlight will have light and no longer live in darkness. The work of the believing grip. So here we have, I can't really just set this down easy, but this is my grip, okay? I think you, you know that. And so this is the mind, will, and the emotions of a believer. This is, this is me. This is you. So the work of the believing grip. Believe stage one, knowing your mind must hear the news about the batteries that have been given. There's batteries that have been given. By the way, they're in that box. I don't know if you can see them, but they've been bequeathed to me. A work of grace and mercy. My God has seen fit to provide. He's known as Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees need in advance, makes provision for it. God knew my need, even though I wasn't even yet born. And he made provision for me, even though I wasn't even yet born. And when I am born and I have this terrible flashlight, he says, I've already made provision for you. And those batteries have been sitting there for 2,000 years. And even though I'm struggling with a flashlight that doesn't work, how many of us actually think our flashlight works too? We're walking around in the darkness saying, yeah, here, come, I have a flashlight. I'll show you around. It's the blind leading the blind. We don't even know where we're at. We're lost in darkness. And one day we recognize that we're in darkness and we can't see. How did we figure that out? It's the grace of God. And we're like, this thing actually doesn't work. I don't even know where I'm at. You're running into people. And suddenly you begin to panic. Who can save me from this darkness? I'm lost. I don't know how to get out of here. I'm condemned. Woe is me. And then someone comes in and shines a little light. A little grace is applied to our life that says, do you know that God didn't intend for your flashlight to not work? He intends for it to function as it ought to function. Batteries have been supplied. Okay, so we actually know. Your mind must hear the news about the batteries that have been given. Reckoning. This is believe stage two. Then you must reckon in your soul that the word spoken is true and credit it to your account that now your flashlight can finally work. So imagine, though I'm still in darkness, I hear that there are batteries, I know that there are batteries, and I know that they're mine. And I know that those batteries will be in my flashlight soon. What do I have? I have a thrill. I have a realization. I'm going to have light. I have light. I have light by faith. You see, my flashlight is going to be restored to its original purpose. Praise God, I believe, and it will happen. Presenting, you must forsake your previous way of handling the flashlight. You must yield up your flashlight, be emptied of self, and allow the real batteries to come in. You see, there's something that has been hindering this flashlight. So, I don't know if I can do this. Does that work? Oh, I get it. 
himself has been filling, attempting to do what only God can do. And this is the work that does not please God. When self tries to function as the batteries, when self tries to make light shine, it does not please God. Why? Because it doesn't actually work. It's of no use. It is of no value. We are conning ourselves into thinking that it is sufficient. But we must awaken to what God says. You're still in darkness, buddy. I know you're trying hard, but you're lost and you're dying. Please repent of this. Unclog your flashlight. You must deny yourself. You must forsake this. You must give up self so that this can be presented unto God. So you present your flashlight unto God. That's what we said. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your flashlight a living sacrifice that what God wants to do with it, he can do. So you must forsake your previous way of handling the flashlight. You must yield up your flashlight, be emptied, be emptied of self, and allow the real batteries to come in. So when you yield up, now you're not the one that puts batteries in. That's a little tricky. So when we're talking about the grip, I want you to know that. You can't get batteries in. However, by faith, when you believe in God, he comes in. In other words, that's his job. That's part of his work. He has made a way possible. Your job is to believe, but when you present yourself, then he delights to come in. So, see if I can get this right. All right. So now, I have present, I've, I've presented myself unto the truth. I believed in it. I have yielded. I've repented of my old way. My old way of doing it, which was my way, my work. I can save myself. I'm fine. I'm in the light. I don't need to see any more than I see now. And then suddenly I'm awakened to the fact that, no, I'm not. And so what do I do? I turn from my way and I yield up this flashlight so that God can come in and do it his way. Exerting. You see, I have a grip. And this grip has a responsibility. And that responsibility, even though it's small, it has been given grace to exert. To let not sin therefore reign in this mortal body. Or to let not darkness emanate from this flashlight. I know darkness doesn't emanate, but you have to use your imagination there. To let not darkness be the defining characteristic of this device that was designed to shine light. And so I've been given that thumb. Look at that. It's right there within range. And God says, exert. Whose power is it? Who did the, the, salvation, the saving work? Who's the one that is supplying everything that is needed for life and godliness to make this flashlight function as it ought? It's God. What's my role? To believe. And if I believe that God has supplied the power, what do I do? I exert the authority. I exert the power that is in there. Hopefully this turns on. Oh, yeah! Yeah! See, that's what happens. Sorry, guys, I'm like shining in your face. Now I don't know if I should turn it off because it seems contrary to my metaphor to turn off the light. I don't know what to do. I'll shine it over here for a second. <laughs> you must turn on the flashlight in agreement with the owner's manual. It is only then when grace is activated, when faith is worked out in love, that the light will be revealed and the flashlight will function as it ought. Obeying. So, I have a working flashlight. Now, probably one of the better ways to look at it would be that this thing needs to be plugged in every night into the power source. There's a devotional life that we must live. According to Scripture, 
We must abide. We must remain. We must go to God daily to find the strength. We must die daily. We must make sure that self doesn't ever creep back into the battery holder. So we must continue to obey, not just exert once and flick on the switch once, but learn to labor to keep it on, to always be light bearers, and to never allow that light to go out. But to maintain this light, to maintain that battery life within, we must continually go unto God who supplied us with the batteries in the first place. So to ensure that your flashlight remains a working flashlight forever. Faith begets faith. One of the statements in, when you have a newborn baby is, sleep begets sleep. You guys ever heard that? So when a child sleeps, it actually helps them continue to sleep. If they're, if they're not sleeping or they're waking up too often, oftentimes they really struggle with sleeping. So not sleeping begets not sleeping. But sleep begets sleep. Faith begets faith. When you walk in faith and you believe, did you know that your faith grows? And then actually you increase in faith and you grow in faith. And now clicking on a light is just you know, natural to you. And keeping that light on is just what you do. And you become stronger in it. Keeping self out becomes more normative to you as opposed to when you first started. It's sort of strange getting self out because self's used to hanging out inside the battery holder. You don't even know what it's like to not be in the battery holder. And so as a result, you gravitate towards the battery holder saying, I think I can do something to help you here, God. And he goes, no, 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 no. We're not going back to that. I'm the one that did something to help you. That's what you believe in. You continually turn towards God. Responsibility or the ability to respond. God throw you, throws you the lifeline. You must grab a hold of it. Your talent must be invested. Your faith must work. Your mina must be traded. You must give that which you have in real world terms to believe. Faith that does not work is dead. Faith that does not have action of faith is not a saving faith. You can know about the health food. But if you continue to eat the junk food, your life will demonstrate that eating junk food kills you. However, when you turn from your junk food and you repent of that and you believe upon God that that food is what will save you, that that food is what will nurture your body, then you give up and forsake that which killed for that which gives life. And guess what? You really do have life. You see, God is not trying to make this complicated. We have made it complicated to try and justify our mediocrity, to try and justify why sticking a treasure map in our pocket is sufficient, and why anyone would make us feel bad about that, we get all upset. That's condemning and judgmental. I'm fine with a map in my pocket. I'm not saying you didn't pray a prayer 30 years ago. I'm saying that that prayer did not activate into real-life living of the Christian existence. You're not alive. If you were alive, you would demonstrate the fruit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Your life would exude what happens when someone actually does believe. You see, the fruits of death are obvious. The fruits of life are also obvious. If you're hanging out in no man's land, I just want you to freshly remember the words of God that started you in that direction in the first place. And say, you know what? I need to actually not just know about these things, but I need my faith to have a work. It needs to believe. It needs to labor towards the ends of God. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message 
but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.